I'm AJ Bianco, host of Reflect Ed, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, do you need help in becoming more effective at teaching virtual classes? Well, NVTA, the National Virtual Teaching Association, has a semester program that is college accredited and designed to help you become more successful as a virtual teacher. A few of the topics that will be focused on are establishing relationships in the virtual environment, virtual instruction best practices, differentiation in the virtual classroom, and managing virtual resources, among others. NVTA is an affiliate partner with Teaching Learning Leading K-12, and there's so much there to help you be successful in the virtual classroom. Uh, so take a look. Go to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash sponsors, find the NVTA logo and click on it to take you to their website. Happy learning. Hey, Steve here. And my podcast, Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is hosted on Podbean. If you use my affiliate link when you sign up for podcast hosting, you will get one month free. I've been on Podbean for the whole existence of my podcast since November of 2013. In that time frame, I've had nonstop service. I've had easy access to assistance when I needed help. I've been able to upload unlimited pictures and podcast episodes. The dashboard is easy to use. My Podbean community has grown tremendously. Looking at starting a podcast? Well, use my affiliate link to get one month free of hosting. Go to my website at stephenmaletto.com sponsors and click on the Podbean hosting link to see what plans are offered and choose the one that you like the best. You'll be glad you did. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Kenneth D. Evans. He's a former CPA and business consultant who has written an amazing book about his father, who was a fighter pilot in World War II, shot down, captured, and imprisoned by the Nazis. Ken used many of his father's personal letters to create the book. The book is titled, Missing, A World War II Story of Love, Friendships, Courage, and Survival. You're going to love this talk. What an awesome book. What an awesome interview. So much to learn today. Thanks for listening. And before you go... It would be so awesome if you went to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash review, and uh, went in there and rated and reviewed the podcast. Could you do that for me? Thanks so much. Enjoy the show. Does the idea of stress actually stress you out? Chances are you weren't taught how to navigate stress, so you've likely been figuring it out as you go. A little meditation here, maybe some breathing exercises, but not knowing how to address the issue can add even more stress. And adults aren't the only ones that experience stress. Oftentimes, children develop adaptive coping skills to manage stress that will follow them into adulthood. These skills may or may not have a healthy long-term impact on general well-being. Whether you're an individual looking for guidance or a family seeking some support, join my friend Lynn at ConnectFlow Grow as she launches her two new exciting memberships, Stressless Society and Stressless Family. Through these memberships, Lynn will help you or your family learn how stress affects your lives and healthy ways that you can combat it. To join Lynn's programs, go to my website, stephenmaletto.com, on the front page, or go to stephenmaletto.com slash sponsors, look for the ConnectFlow Grow logo, and select the class you think will help you the most, either stress-less society or stress-less family. Get ready to get your stress under control. You are listening to Teaching Learning Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Kenneth D. Evans' decade-long quest to learn and write about his father's World War II experiences was featured in Salt Lake City's Deseret News on Father's Day 2017. His book is called Missing, A World War II Story of Love, Friendships, Courage, and Survival. He was a CPA and business consultant for more than 40 years. During his career, he helped set up and served as a board member on several nonprofit organizations, including an equine therapy center for people with disabilities and a foundation operating schools in Guatemala. He also assisted in interfaith disaster relief efforts following hurricanes uh, Balula and Katrina. An outdoor enthusiast, Ken enjoys fly fishing, horseback riding, and spending time at his family cabin. He and his wife, Sandy, have six children and 15 grandchildren. They reside on his family's farm in Saratoga Springs, Utah. Ken, thanks for joining me today. Say hi to everyone. Hello. Uh, thanks for having me on. Well, I'm glad you're here. And before we do anything else, I, 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 I love to fish. All right. And I just have to mention that it was cool reading in your bio. Now, I'm not, I fly f- 
fly fished once. Does that sound right? Is that grammatically correct? I don't know. But I have, I have fished with a fly. I fly, fly fished once for salmon up in Alaska um, for the, um, the sockeye because you're only allowed to catch them that way. And uh, that was an interesting amount of time I spent, especially because you had to throw back the ones you accidentally snagged. You know, they actually had to grab the fly by the, you know, you had to get them in the mouth. And uh, that was pretty wild. Where'd your love for fly fishing come from? Uh, actually, it relates to my father. Uh, starting in Alaska was a great place to start, obviously. There's a lot of fish. Yes. <laughs> um, when I was eight years old, he uh, took me on a trip to uh, Idaho in the Island Park, Kenry's Lake area. Beautiful area. Um, and uh, he taught me how to fly fish um, in that lake. Uh, nearly every year since then, I've taken my uh, sons, sometimes my daughters, um, and this last year, um, my grandson, back to that lake. Uh, I've taught, I taught my children how to fly fish on that same lake. Nice. That's so awesome. That is very cool. So what do you, what do you catch? Uh, that lake has some big cutthroats and uh, hybrids across between a rainbow and a cutthroat in it. So it's pretty famous lake. There's uh, people back in your country that have probably journeyed all the way to Idaho to fish that lake. That's awesome. That's very cool. I'll have to check that out. We got, uh, I'm getting ready to go to Louisiana to fish for uh, um, redfish. And yeah. uh, so looking forward to doing that here shortly. But uh, good stuff. That's I've always wanted. That's something I've always wanted to do. Tell me how you do. I will do that. I'll do that. I'm looking forward to it. I've not done this one either. It's like, uh, this is, I'm looking forward to it. So awesome stuff. Uh, before we get into your book, Missing, a World War II story of love, friendships, courage, and survival, What's something that you've always wanted to remember about your father? Um, a number of things. But uh, he was a kind and gentle man, and yet he was a competitor, um, an athlete, uh, all stayed in three sports, uh, played college tennis, uh, and just uh, had this amazing competitive spirit um, combined with uh, – with patience and kindness and humility. Um, an amazing man. Uh, I very much, I, I have an, a number of great memories about him. That's excellent. That's very, that's very cool. I, you know, one of the things that it's neat, uh, you know, how competitive he was in sports and successful in them. Um, you know, one of the things that, uh, I mean, what do you know about his life before the war happens? I mean, what do you know about what he, besides, um, being successful in the, the athletics and such, is there stuff that he know that he, he liked to do or, I mean, or what he did? Uh, I know a lot. Uh, and it's uh, to a great extent uh, because of my mother. She was uh, a dedicated, amazing scrapbooker. Uh, she accumulated uh, and, and put into scrapbooks pictures, um, stories, newspaper articles, um, uh, ask him question after question about growing up, had him write things down. And so um, my dad didn't really, probably wouldn't have done that on his own, but uh, um, my mother did it and kind of forced him into doing things. He was a really good writer, um, very witty, had a sarcastic sense of humor. And uh, so the, the scrapbooks, the pictures, the journals, the things that my mother had him do during his lifetime um, are interesting and amusing. Nice. That's, that's very cool. The, uh, um, it, it, it's so awesome. I, you know, basically, after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, your father, Don, and his name's Don, he enlisted, um, eventually ending up in the 368th Fighter Group of the 9th Air Force. Can you talk a little bit about... Um, about the calling that many of them felt, many people felt, um, for just enlisting and joining up? Um, my father in uh, some of his uh, notebooks and writings and, and later in an oral history um, talked about how at age 18, he and his uh, three roommates in college um, felt patriotic like most young Americans did back then. And they talked about enlisting. They were under the draft age, um, and 
they eventually decided instead of waiting to be drafted, they were going to join the um, Army Air Force Reserve, uh, which required two years of college education in order to get into the flight training program. Um, and my, my dad made the comment, he said, I've never even been in an airplane, but uh, I learned how to drive a tractor on the farm, so I figured it can't be that much harder. And uh, after, in less than a year, uh, the war started uh, going a different direction than America hoped. And they changed the two-year college requirement. They threw lots of requirements out the window, and they, they immediately called uh, those that were in the Air Force programs, like the College Reserve Program. Uh, they called him up. And so he and his friends, uh, all four of them, in, uh, entered um, Hill Air Force Base, uh, or, um, Fort Douglas, um, and, uh, and joined up. Uh, he then spent about a year uh, in flight training. Um, and it was, uh, according to him, the hardest thing that he had ever done in his life. Uh, not knowing from one day to the next whether he was going to move on or get washed out. Um, uh, a small percentage of those that entered flight training actually ended up being fighter pilots. It was interesting. He, he wrote that there were uh, the uh, high percentage, high 90% something of uh, candidates wanted to be fighter pilots, and yet there were very few that uh, actually made it all the way through and uh, were qualified. That's interesting because I, I knew that it was a short, they, they started creating a very short, uh, well, comparatively short turnaround time for creating pilots there for a while. And uh, I was wondering a little bit about how long he may have um, taken to, to, to do that because he ends up in a really cool um, plane and uh, situation there. Because I know, you know, one of the one of the planes I'm fascinated is the B-17 and the crews that flew those bombers. And... Uh, those planes were interesting because they had, uh, um, I, I've watched several, uh, read a lot about them and I guess they, <laughs> there wasn't any heat on them and they flew at these high altitudes and, uh, just kind of interesting about the, the problems they had with, uh, trying to stay warm. But, uh, but your, your father ended up, he ends up flying a P 47. Uh, can you talk about that plane a little bit? Do you know about, uh, obviously not the specific one he flew, but. Um, yeah, they were an amazing plane. He, um, after he got his wings, um, uh, he entered a program, a training program in uh, uh, Florida that uh, was specific for uh, training P-47 fighter pilots. Um, and he fell in love with the plane. I mean, he, he loved flying. Um, he had a, uh, a a pilot mentality, uh, and uh, he and his buddies just loved being in the air. I mean, they got demerits for buzzing the tower, for uh, uh, chasing after aircraft that uh, ventured in from another air base. Uh, they had mock uh, uh fights in the in the air i mean he, he wrote some really about some really funny experiences that i included in my book but um the the plane itself was um it was called the thunderbolt uh and it had a couple of nicknames um one of them was the jug um and uh it, it the pilot said that it resembled uh, a milk jug um <laughs> but it was really a behemoth of a, uh, of a plane. It was the largest uh, fighter bomber, only, the only fighter bomber plane that uh, the U.S. had during, uh, the Allies had during the war. It had uh, eight 50 caliber machine guns on under each wing. It could carry uh, two HVAR rockets um, and a combination of those and bombs. And they, they, uh, they could, in a dive, they could fly 700 plus miles an hour. Um, so um, my dad described it as a rush <laughs> when he was doing diving and, and dive bomb uh, 
uh, attacks during missions during the war. I can I can only imagine. I mean, <clears throat> you're diving at 700 miles an hour, and you know, I, I meant to say this earlier when you made the comment about it, he he thought he since he could drive a tractor, he thought he could learn how to fly a plane. And uh, which sounds like a T-shirt, by the way, that'd make a great bumper sticker or a T-shirt or something. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I drive tractors. What's the difference? You're going to definitely drive a plane. What, I, I, um, what an amazing experience that would have to have to be. And so how old do you think he was when he got his wings? Um, he was 19 years old. Um, he was 20 when he uh, shipped overseas and entered the war in the European theater. Uh, went across the ocean on uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, troop ship uh, and ended up uh, on uh, in the British Isles uh, where they finished their training. And then he uh, ended up uh, across the pond on Normandy Beach. Uh, the, the first base he was at, they actually had put out uh, metal railing uh, runways uh, they flew and landed right off the beach. Um, their principal assignment was uh, doing um, paving the way for Patton's Third Army. They did strafing and bombing runs, and they he moved um, several different bases as Patton's Army would uh, move further to the east across uh, France and Belgium and Germany. Um, they they would relocate. So they were really close to the front lines. They were generally within just uh, three to five minutes airtime of the front lines. Wow. Wow. This, this is, uh, and now while this is all going on, he's writing letters home, right? Is that? Uh, yes. Um, nearly every day. Um, cool. He was a prolific letter writer. Um, and, uh, uh, that was one of the more humorous things that I that I, I discovered about my father, how deeply in love and and uh, taken he was uh, with my mother. Uh, he wrote everything that he could that would uh, get through censors, uh, and almost and almost every day. Um, he, uh, uh, I, I used to joke that. Uh, he invented every way possible to say, I love you, miss you, think about you always, and don't know how I can live without you. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's cool. And, and, and it's just interesting to, and to keep in mind that he's, he's 20 years old. So he's, I mean, he's not that much older. I mean, how did, how did they meet? I mean, how did they uh, come to be together? Uh, they were high school sweethearts. Um, my uh, mother's first recollection of my father was, uh, her mother was a school teacher. She lived next to the, the high school I went to. And uh, she would sit on her front porch and watch him play tennis uh, right across the street. That's funny. Um, and uh, she was a couple of years younger. She was a sophomore when he was a senior. And she wrote in her personal history that uh, she had fallen in love with someone that she didn't even think noticed her, <laughs> even though it was a small town. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and so they... Uh, um, their courtship continued, uh, when my father, uh, enlisted, um, he was smitten and wanted to ask her to marry him and was really torn, uh, between should he or shouldn't he. And, uh, they were both at that point in time underage. They needed their parents' permission. Uh, uh neither set of parents wanted to give it, um, and uh, love went out over logic, and he asked her anyway, and uh, <laughs> nice. she said yes, and didn't tell anybody because they weren't supposed to be getting engaged anyway. And so her sister was the only one that actually knew for months and months that uh, they were engaged. Well, while she was still in high school. That's so cool because this, you know, their love obviously is going to play a big role in. Uh in helping him get home. And it's, it's really cool to know about that world that, uh, um, like it's crazy before he goes, you know, one of the pictures on the website, I believe is a picture right before he ships out. Isn't it? That, uh, um, actually the picture that's on the, uh, the cover, uh, was taken just before his last mission. 
Gotcha. The, um, so that's the one with him in the flight uh, suit right. and all that. Gotcha. The, uh, I was going to ask you about that picture. I was going to ask you if that was like a, like if they did that of all the pilots or something like that. It's kind of a cool, kind of a, it needs to have uh, him stand in front of Glenn Miller's band and all you know, kinds of, there's, it, it's just a not neat picture. Uh, one of his buddies who uh, didn't make it back from the war uh, took that picture. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, it was found among his things and uh, uh, ended up being sent to my mother. So picture has some special meaning. I can imagine. That's, that's awesome. I'm glad I asked you about that. The, uh, tell me about that. Now, there's a picture of uh, him and his wife um, that uh, I, I, one of the things I'm, I, I cannot imagine what it was like to say goodbye to somebody not knowing whether you come back. And especially at the age that they they both are. And did you, did you, what did you run into in, in letters about them, you know, as in the early days of him being gone? When my mother uh, wrote her personal history, um, just a few a few months after my father passed away, um, she went back and reread all three hundred letters that she had saved. Wow. Uh, every letter he had written from when they were in high school together up until he got returned from returned from the war and um, and then wrote her history. And she wrote in detail what it was like uh, the last few days that they they spent together and how it was the only time she ever remembered my father being pensive and uh, so introspective and almost solemn. Um, and attributed as she attributed the fact that he didn't know he was upbeat and positive and was, uh, telling people he would be back. But in her words, um, he struggled not knowing whether he was saying goodbye to her and to his family for the last time, uh, when he shipped out on a train. Just, I cannot imagine what that feeling would have been like, and especially, um, I mean, I mean, just to not knowing what's going to be the, what's the world going to be like. I mean, just, uh, and, uh, leaving it all behind. It's part, I wonder if that definitely was part of the encouragement to go ahead and make sure they were married. <laughs> um, <laughs> which I think that's a funny story. So, um, so let's, let's talk about, uh, since we started doing this, let's talk about uh, your research for your book. Uh, once again, it's missing a World War II story of love, friendships, courage, and survival. So you took, you had access to all these letters and everything. Is that a big part of your research? Yeah, to start with, that's probably what inspired me to uh, uh, want to record um, uh, what I was learning. Um, I learned so much about my parents at a time when my dad, both of them really had another, uh, lived another life. Um, and I was just, um, driven to, to learn more. And so, um, as I read the letters, I started, uh, researching, um, I got in contact with, I actually, I came across a, a letter uh, that my mother had saved that, uh, one of my dad's best friends, which, who I knew growing up, he lived in California, um, who was, um, one of his, um, fly buddies. Uh, they were in the same squadron and they had been, they, he's the only person that my dad kept in contact with after the war that he uh, served with. I never heard of them talk about the war together. Um, but I knew, I knew him quite well. And this letter, uh, he had written to my mother after, uh, my father was shot down. It was against regulations to write such a letter, but he wrote it anyway and gave her all the details that he could about what had happened trying to give her encouragement that he might still be alive. And he was optimistic in the letter. It's an amazing letter. He called it in his own words, a wretched letter, but <laughs> it's an amazing letter. Um, and when I read that, um, I got in touch with him. Uh, he told me that he had, he re, he stayed in the military, he retired as a Lieutenant Colonel and it was a test pilot flew also in the Korean war. And so, um, and he was a editor for the Lockheed Delta 11 magazine. Um, oh, and so he was a writer 
and he had kept um, mission reports that were unauthorized, but he kept them <laughs> anyway, including some of, them, of my dad's uh, missions. Uh, he had photograph albums. He had journals that he had kept um, and had an amazing memory and was uh, really sharp technically um, with technology. And when I found out what he had and he found out I was trying to recreate or, or record my father's history, he said, let me help you. Um, I would love to do it. And I flew out, met him again. Uh, we went through things and, and struck up uh, a great friendship. He's still alive to this day. I consider him a close personal friend, even though he's now 99 years old. Wow. Uh, uh, and, uh, and so he put me in touch, uh, with others that my dad had flown with. I ended up discovering, uh, and talking to, and on the phone and exchanging letters and getting, um, uh, mission reports from a guy I was named after, nice. uh, who was also a close personal friend. I was, and so I just, I found out one thing after another, um, uh, and eventually ended up, uh, getting information uh, getting contacted by a, a, a young man who was trying to discover who his great uncle was in World War II because nobody knew anything about him. And it was uh, an, an interesting, uh, almost a miracle that we ended up together. And he discovered his great aunt had saved a couple of hundred of his letters. Wow. And he collaborated with me. And so... I came up with all this contemporaneous information. One of the things that's, uh, I think, rather unique about the book that I ended up writing is that it's it's not oral histories. It's not um, memories that are 70 or 80 years old. Um, and I love oral histories, don't get me wrong. Um, but I was really heavily in, uh, uh, influenced by... Rick Atkinson, who was a Pulitzer Prize winner writing about, who wrote a trilogy about World War II. You may have read it. Uh, amazing books. And I watched a C-SPAN interview in which he addressed that particular issue, oral histories versus contemporaneously written journals, interviews, uh, recordings um, uh, from a historical standpoint, uh, which being a history teacher, I'm sure you can appreciate the difference between the two. Very much so. And, um, he was asked by uh, someone who did oral historic uh, histories why he didn't include those in his book. And he, he basically said it's because there's a difference between memories and written word. And uh, as much as he appreciated what that guy was doing, um, and I appreciate the oral historian who was that did an oral history for, of my father in depth. But he relied, Rick Atkinson relied on um, information that he could verify. And so it influenced me uh, significantly. And I decided that I was going to follow his cue and use journals, um, diaries, uh, personal histories, stories that were written and recorded um, close to the time that the events took place. And I was really blessed and fortunate to have hundreds and hundreds of those kind of documents um, to do that with. In addition to that, I, I've got a whole library of World War II uh, books. Um, I have always loved history. I had a history minor in college. Um, and so I, I delved into World War II, especially the Battle of the Bulge. Um, I once joked that um, I started researching the Battle of the Bulge and uh, entered the Ardennes Forest and, and didn't leave for six months. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and so um, I wanted to preserve their story. I wanted to learn their story. I was, I was learning who my father was in another life. I thought I was close to my dad and I thought I really knew him. And yet he was a 19, 20 year old kid, uh, uh living a life that, you know, I don't even think we can imagine, uh, what it was like. 
and I wanted to preserve it for my children, my grandchildren, and eventually a couple of my clients who were writers um, encouraged me to try and put it in a book format uh, that would be available uh, to the general public. So 10 years later, I published it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Glad you had the encouragement to, to do that. It's a, it's a great retelling. And I, and I love the, the whole thought about, you know, because using the letters, it, it's, everyone who talks about that is so right because it's, you know, those are their thoughts and, and ideas at the moment as opposed to trying to remember and things get confused and this may have happened out of that sequence or something or they change their feelings even, you know, <laughs> thoughts about things, you know, can happen. And, uh, but when you look at something like, and, you know, on the website, there are those uh, images of the the letters informing uh, his wife that uh, he had been shot down. And, uh, you know, th- those are just not very, I mean, they're short to the, I mean, just, just to see that image, to, just to see that letter where uh, they're just short, concise, and, you know, there's not a whole lot of hope out of that initial letter. And then, uh, you know, the follow-up letter, which... Um, they now know that he's been captured and, uh, just even just something like that is just, a, um, it's amazing what, uh, I mean, the emotions that the first letter had to create and then the second one had to create because at least there's hope now. Um, and then to know at some point he's going to start writing letters again, right? <laughs> Boone Titanium Rings found on the web at boonrings.com is an affiliate partner of Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12. And I'm also a customer. I have this really cool ring that's ca- got these carved pistons and, and stars in it. I love it. They make rings of titanium that are carved, laser cut, and engraved, as well as they have inlays of many types of materials like meteorite, acrylic, wood, carbon fiber, and so many other types. They also have special collections that are incredible designs. One of the top sellers are the Gamer Rings, the Stealth Series, and the Black Zirconium. As a note, they also make earrings, pendants, cufflinks, and for you musicians, they make cool trumpet mouthpieces. Love it. Go to boonrings.com and at checkout, use my code, capital T, capital L, capital L, capital K, number 12, and you'll get 10% off your purchase. So go check them out. I love my ring, and I know that you will love yours. It's interesting, and he continued um, after he was captured, uh, and um, I write about the 200-mile march uh, in in his words, uh, when he was in POW camp, the YMCA had uh, blue notebooks that they provided um, the POWs. And um, he didn't smoke, and a lot of the uh, prisoners did. And so he traded uh, cigarettes for uh, additional writing materials. And so he, he wrote down day by day his 14-mile uh, March. It's incredible that he survived. Um, and, um, and then they would, um, they provided the prisoners with a certain number of letters. Um, some were a long version and some were with more lines than others. And then they would, and another one was postcard. And he also traded, um, uh, for those so that he could write as often as he could. Um, uh, and one of his big concerns was they, his squadron didn't know if he had survived because when he parachuted out, um, um, he was under 200 feet, wow. uh, bailed out upside down in a, uh, an amazing maneuver. One swing of his parachute, and he slammed into a side hill in an opening in a forest. It's a miracle he survived. Um, and no one saw him bail out. Uh, they, so they saw his parachute, but that was it. So that's all they knew about him. And he was afraid that my mother would not know if he was alive or not. And that if he made it to a POW camp, that eventually the Red Cross would find out he was alive and, and they would send something. And then when he started getting these letter forms in POW camp, he was writing everything that he could. Some of the things were blacked out, uh, but... He wrote some interesting letters, and uh, he he never he did never got a letter from my mother uh, uh-huh. while uh, all the time he was in POW camp. Um, and when the Russians freed them, um, interestingly, when everyone was celebrating and doing all kinds of everything, uh, once they got freed, my dad immediately went to the record room 
realizing the Germans were anal retentive record keepers, uh, found his uh, file under his uh, prison number, 7435, and found his um, the picture that's on the back of the, the cover when he entered into, uh, when he was interned in the prison camp, found the document that had all the information about him that they knew, and he found several letters from my mother that had been received that the Germans, the Nazis, did not give him, um, and he found all of his letters that he had written. And so some clerk had saved everything, and somebody further up the the ladder had made the decision, we're not even going to deal with mail for these prisoners. So the last six months or so, no correspondence went in or out. And so that's when he realized that my mother may or may not even know that he was still alive. But the Red Cross had uh, notified her, and uh, and they never did tell her or find out which prison camp he was in. So she wrote letters, and a few of them actually made it to Stalag one where he was imprisoned. And uh, he described an amazing experience. While everyone's out celebrating, he's sitting on the floor in a record room reading letters from my mother. Wow. It was pretty, it was pretty, pretty touching. That, that would be very much so. That's, that's, that's wild. And I, I just kind of want to back up for a second because, um, so he was flying, this is all during the Battle of the Bulge, and uh, it's Christmas Eve and he's shot down. And so he finds himself captured by uh, Nazi SS troops on Christmas Day. And so you've mentioned the the march and all of that. Can we kind of kind of go back and move forward with that? Um, what happens after he's captured? Uh, sure. Um, the first time he shared this to, uh, to family uh, was towards the end. I had talked to him about it several times, um, but with family uh, was on Christmas Eve. Um, just a short time before he passed away, he was suffering from heart failure and he Christmas was always a real special time for him. And he had the family gathered around the fireplace in their home. Uh, our children, um, were there and remember it vividly and talked about, uh, when he was shot down that he spent the night under, a, uh, a pine tree that was over 50 feet tall. Um, and uh, he had spent the, the day and well into the night um, wandering around as just as uh, trying to be undetected. He was surrounded by German, by Germans, soldiers and German SS. Every, every way that he went, he had uh, he encountered uh, soldiers. Um, and he spent the night under that Christmas tree and uh, watched uh, as bombs burst in the air during the night from both sides. He was in no man's land. Um, uh, And it reminded him of uh, Francis Scott Key's Star-Spangled Banner of the bombs bursting in air. And uh, he he wrote that he was the most lonely uh, feeling that he'd ever had in his life. And he hoped that he would see the flag wave again someday. and the next the next day he was captured uh, by German SS troops. Um, they he thought that was going to be the end. They stripped him of his coat, his gloves, hat, uh, all of his belongings, and then they ripped his dog bags off. And at that point in time, they weren't taking a lot of prisoners. And uh, the officer in charge, the SS officer in charge. Um, pointed and said something to a couple of the, uh, there were about 20 of them there and they started digging a hole that was just about his size. And he could see that they were planning on, uh, executing him and burying him right there. Um, he wrote in his me- memoirs that he was prompted, uh, to speak in French. Uh, he, he used what Germany he knew, 
um, and uh, got the officer in charge attention and then was prompted to speak in French and the officer spoke French and my dad had been studying French and uh, he was able to talk him into uh, uh, taking him in for interrogation. Um, told him that he had a lot of good information and he was willing to spill his guts. And, uh, and after that, he never said anything more than his name, rank, and serial number. Um, but, um, that was the, the, the end of, uh, uh, of his, of his capture. Um, it's a miracle that he even survived the plane crash. Um, he described how his cockpit had filled up with smoke. His wingman had yelled, Evans, you're on fire, bail out. Um, he had just barely uh, strafed a German Tiger tank. Um, he wrote how they had come up with a, since you're into airplanes and P-47s, they had, they had uh, come up with a strategy uh, at that point in the war where they would uh, uh, dive to strafe tanks they would be just feet off the air. I mean, he came back saying sometimes there were branches on their uh, wings and, uh, you know, they, they were, they were just right on the ground. They would start high and get tremendous speed. And they started strafing underneath the tiger tanks because they, they, they were, otherwise they had to hit them with a bomb, which was almost impossible. They would, they would strafe underneath and ricochet their 50 caliber machine gun, uh, in the, um, undercarry underbelly, which was not well protected. And he had just done that, turned around and, and looked and saw smoke bellowing from the tank when he was, um, hit by anti-aircraft. And in just seconds, he had to make a decision as to what he was going to do. He was under 200 feet. It's almost impossible to survive at that. Um, low of an altitude, generally uh, the, the chute wouldn't open in time. And so he claimed that his guardian angel was there on his shoulder and prompted him and inspired him what to do. And he turned his plane upside down and tried a, a, a maneuver that was not recommended. Um, he was flying upside down, trying to gain altitude. His plane's on fire, uh, could explode in any moment. And he got as high as he waited as long as he thought he could. And then he uh, pushed himself up, which was upside down, and forced himself out, just missing the tail. Um, and instead of waiting the three, like the manual, counting the three, like the manual said, he immediately hit his, his ripcord, uh, parachute open in one swing, and he... Um, hit one of the few open spots on a side hill that was uh, in a forest. Um, injured his feet, um, had cuts, bruises, and whatever else, but his foot injuries were uh, the, mo the most serious. Made it hard for him to walk. Wow. That's, it, like you said, it's just amazing that, I mean, because the speed he had to be going when he's 200 feet off the ground also, he's not, uh, you know, he's not just a little cruising around. That's uh um, and then to flip that, oh my gosh, that's, uh, um, pretty amazing. So, so then they take, they take him on this, you know, he, he's now on this march that's going to take him to, um, the prison camp, right? Um, it took them to, um, a way station, an interrogation sta station in Frankfurt. Um, that night, uh, some of this, the, my, my dad ended up in a warehouse of sorts, which was an SS headquarter. Um, that night they brought in and the next morning they brought in some additional POWs. Uh, my dad was the senior officer. Um, and so <laughs> they, they were, uh, there was a, a tank driver and, and, uh, some infantry soldiers and whatever they said, Hey, you're in charge. <laughs> you're, you're the only officer you're in charge. And so they started to march, uh, and they picked up prisoners. They went along, uh, the, the journey took 14 days over 200 miles in one of the coldest winters on record in Germany. And, um, they didn't give him his coat gloves or hat back. He was in his flight suit and that was it. And 
they ended up having a pretty good sized group marching uh, by the time they hit Frankfurt. And uh, my dad was the only pilot. He was, he ended up being the ranking officer all the way through. And his guys, as he called them, um, helped protect him. Uh, the people hated pilots, rightly so. And he had his flight suit on with a P-47 painted on the back of it. And so he was, he was a, a target. And so they would put him in the middle of their group uh, to protect him as they marched through towns. And they, they had, uh, um, he had a number of experiences that he, he wrote about that were, um, between interesting and miraculous that he survived, uh, got to, finally got to uh, Frankfurt, uh, was put in interrogation. Every pilot in the European theater that was shot down and captured as a POW was, uh, ended up in uh, this uh, dulag in uh, Frankfurt, Germany, um, for interrogation. And uh, after that, uh, he was uh, put on a, a 40 and 8 uh, boxcar that they used to used to haul horses and, and uh, uh, around in and uh, went through Berlin and up to uh, Barth, Germany, and was interned in Stalag Luft I. Uh, it was a, a, a German prison, prison camp for Air Force, uh, for both uh, English and American uh, pilots that were shot down and captured. One of the things that you've, uh, you talk about in the book, and you mentioned um, – and I think we touched on it just a little bit before is you talk about the five. Can you just kind of talk about the five for just a minute? Cause these are these friends, right? And yeah. Uh, <clears throat> a fascinating, uh, eclectic group of guys. Okay. So at the, at the last of my dad's training where they did the P 47, a fighter pilot training, uh, in Florida, um, he meets two guys from Salt Lake City. The one that I mentioned is still alive. And uh, another guy from Salt Lake City that they met on the train going from Salt Lake after a leave to Florida. My dad took a different train, ended up there at the same time. And they ended up bunkmates along with two guys from Missouri. Uh, they were... It was the difference between uh, when they would have competitive sports events, the uh, the Utah guys would uh, pop for chocolate shakes, and uh, uh, the Missourians uh, drank stuff a little harder than that. <laughs> and they they were different in a lot of ways, but uh, and were strange bedfellows in ways, and yet they become they became just close close friends. Uh, they had each other's back. Uh, they were, they knew each other personally. Uh, my dad was the only one that was married. Uh, and, uh, reading the letters that I, uh, that I got from, uh, all but one of them, um, and, and interviewing, um, the ones that I could, uh, I, I got to know them, uh, nice. at least as, as well as you can, uh, um, and, they, they were just, they, they were great guys. And interestingly enough, um, they, they stayed together through that training. Then they got separated for uh, some final training before they were shipped, uh, for the, and then they reunited again and were stuck in, and they were put in the same barracks and were roommates again for a couple of weeks until they were uh, sent by train to New York city. And then they got assigned together uh, to go to Europe. And then they, uh, with, with hundreds of pilots in training in England, uh, they, they ended up together the rest of the war. Wow. Uh, and so they got really close. They got, they got really close. That's so neat. It's, it's, it's interesting uh, hearing about that connection and the friendships that developed in the the interesting things that had to happen to take place to keep them together for so long, which I think is amazing too. They, uh, 
Um, and, and I want to kind of use that description to go into this because, I mean, how do you think Don actually survived? I mean, what, what kind of kept him going? Because once he's, he's captured and, I mean, it's, you know, he's not getting letters back and he's writing them and that had to make him wonder whether she was getting any of his stuff at all. And, and I, and I know he's writing in the, in the notebook, the, the blue books that you're talking about. The, uh, but I mean, what do you think really helped him overcome those life threatening conditions that he was living in? What comes to my mind is uh, there was a newspaper article in this, uh, in a scrapbook that my mother had for my dad, one of them. Uh, where the sportscaster or sports writer uh, for a Salt Lake City newspaper, after my father uh, won the state singles tennis championship, described him um, as uh, his 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 will to win. Um, he was tenacious and he wouldn't quit. Um, and that seemed to be my dad throughout his life. Um, he just had a competitive spirit that um, he, he wouldn't, I mean, he could leave, he could live with defeat, but he, uh, he didn't give up. Um, and he was driven by his love for my mother. I mean, he just, uh, throughout his life, uh, whenever he would get asked that or, and in the letters and the things that he wrote subsequent, it was like, I was driven to reunite with your mom. I mean, uh, I've often wondered uh, how he would have served, you know, most of the POW survived, um, how they survived and what they, how they came back is uh, a whole different uh, story. Um, but I've often wondered if he would have come back as kind and gentle and um, a man as he was after the atrocities that he both witnessed and experienced, if it hadn't have been for that relationship with my mom and being able to focus on, on writing and those, those, uh, blue YMC notebooks that I, I mentioned earlier, um, were just crammed full of everything from poetry to stories to funny narratives. I found pages that had just single words or phrases mm. that I spent weeks researching and finding. They use words that are no longer used in our vocabulary. Um, I uh, did research his his historically to find out. I found he mentions the name of a guard uh, that he had a relationship with that hunted in the United States. Apparently he was wealthy before the war and I researched and found out about him. And then there were some other references to him. He had references to his bunk mates. He wrote about every one of, uh, the 23 other, uh, prisoners that were in that small little crammed up room. They couldn't all even stand up in, um, he had their name, rank, serial number, uh, where they where they were born, where they lived, uh, how they he wrote how they ended up uh, uh, being shot down or captured. Their story, uh, much of which I include in the book, um, and um, I he found ways to stay busy and occupied that were productive, where there were many that counted the barbs on the wire that surrounded the prison camp. Uh, they used to call, say that the prisoners were struggling with barbed wire disease and uh, boredom. And, uh, and they, they, they lost up to 40% of their body weight during a period of time when they nearly starved to death, when they, they had no uh, Red Cross food to and supplies to supplement what the Germans were giving them. Um, they were treated, they were treated in inhumanely, uh, at the end. Um, but that's, uh, he somehow had that, uh, will, um, uh, to survive, but not just to survive, but to maintain, um, his, his values and his, um, uh, perspective. And he looked to the future. 
he constantly in his notebook talked about when I get home. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. One of the things you talk about is that your father uh, found it difficult to, to confront his past and to talk about what really happened um, in those days. And do you know why? What, what, or do you have a thought about that? Yeah, uh, <clears throat> quite a few. In fact, um, I write at the beginning of the book how my dad would share almost everything, except when it came to World War II, he was very guarded. Um, uh, my my mother, uh, when I would ask her, she said that um, in his letters, he used to tell me he would talk about this when he got home from the war. But his letters that he wrote to her during that time period, he wasn't a POW. He hadn't witnessed the atrocities that he that he experienced. Um, and he, she believes that he was afraid that it was going to just uh, bring back unwanted memories. Um, it became clear to me um, early on that my father had struggled with PTSD his entire life. Uh, had learned somehow to push those memories and feelings somewhere in the back of his mind and, uh, and deal with them. Um, I, uh, after, after the war, um, they, uh, the government paid for, uh, all the POWs that served in the European theater to go on an expense paid trip down to Southern California. And they put them up in hotels and, uh, uh, you know, they listened to big band era groups and, and whatever it was. My, my mom said it was the best two weeks she had ever spent in her life from an entertainment standpoint. Well, they, uh, my, my father wrote that they attended several, uh, um, conferences that, uh, the military put on. And so I researched and actually found, uh, records. The government keeps almost everything. They just don't make it easy to find, um, <laughs> uh, and I, I found records of two of those meetings. And I include some of the excerpts in my book where the POWs were told that if they had problems ongoing um, with anything that we consider PTSD symptoms, that it was because they took those issues with them when they entered the military. And there was nothing that happened during the war that they shouldn't be able to get over. And the best thing they could do was really not talk about it because it would, it would show, be a sign of weakness. And so I think that group, that, that generation that my father was in kept their mouths shut. They didn't talk about it because they had been convinced by their government that it was a sign of weakness. And it was their fault that they, uh, had those, those issues. But obviously my father was able to, 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 to work his way through it. Um, shortly before he died, we found, I found a list of all of the 368 fighter pilots he had flown with and knew during the war. And he had, and my mother didn't know about this. We didn't know about it. He had put down names, addresses, and phone numbers. And even though he had never attended any of the reunions afterwards, like, uh, the rest of the five that survived the war did. Um, he clearly was never out of his mind because he contacted a number of them um, and had notes. Uh, this, this person had passed away, uh, talked to this one about and, and re reminisced about such and such, and he shouldn't put notes down about that. And uh, so even at the end of his life, uh, it affected some of the things he did and how he did them. Um, and it clearly, um, clearly never left, clearly never left him. That's, it's, um, just an interesting thing that, uh, you know, what they, I mean, basically this is what they told you and this is what you do. And, and, uh, um, but to be told that, uh, you know, if you have issues, you brought it with you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, it's just, uh, it is crazy, but it's in interesting that that's what, you know, you discovered as you're, you know, um, 
as you work and, and learning more about uh, um, who he was and what he did and all those those things. So, you know, it's uh, it, Ken. I've really enjoyed talking with you today. I, I've got a couple of questions that I want to make sure that we we get in here at the end. And one of them is kind of is this: um, What lessons do you think from World War II should never be forgotten? Uh, good question. I'm glad you asked that. It's one of the reasons that I wrote the book, um, not only for my children and grandchildren, but for others that uh, would read the book, that this generation uh, really was the greatest generation. They, they, they did some amazing things and set an example for us that, um, that together... Uh, with a common purpose, great things can be accomplished. Um, if, if, if we set aside some of the things that are personal, um, if we're even to the point of making sacrifice and do things for the common good, uh, whatever that means, um, that we can overcome almost any obstacle and accomplish almost anything. And that's, and that's what happened during world war two with, with the men and women that were too old to, to go to war, uh, the 16 million young uh, people like my father who volunteered uh, to go to a war in a country they'd never been to, not knowing if they would even come back, and the women like my mother who stayed behind and filled the jobs that they, they left behind. Uh, there was a feeling of patriotism, of... Um, not taking things for granted, um, uh, an appreciation for freedoms and, and America, even with its flaws, uh, had. Uh, and I think that the values that they exhibited to do that are uh, admirable. And with the issues we're facing today, I think there's lessons that we can learn. And, uh, and I, and I hope that those lessons won't be forgotten. I am so with you on that. It's a, uh, just amazing what they had to put together in a short period of time to be able to deal with what was going on in the world. And it pretty much caused the entire you know, shifted the direction of the country and, and, uh, focused it on, uh, an effort and, uh, um, and just, uh, Many lives that were changed as a result of that, as well as the country. Um, I, your story is amazing. I appreciate uh, all that you've done here, Ken. Ken but, um, if someone wanted to connect with you or learn more, where would you send them? Um, my book is available anywhere that uh, you can buy books online. Um, it's in uh, hard hard copy, uh, paperback, ebook, um, and uh, Scott Brick recently uh, did an audio book. Uh, uh, recording for me. Um, probably the easiest way is to Google, Google missing, uh, by Kenneth e. Evans and it'll take you to Amazon and, uh, my website. And there's a number of, uh, articles and things that have been written, um, that uh, you can access from there. Excellent. And I'll make sure that, uh, um, those, those links are in the show notes so that people will be able to find it there as well. And, uh, I have, uh, I have another question I'd like to ask you, and it, uh, yeah. it goes like this. It's questions that I like to ask my guests. And, and uh, the, this question is, do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it, and what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? Um, I have several. Uh, I had several teachers that uh, made a big difference in my life. I come from a family of uh, teachers, uh, two of which uh, – my sister graduated magna cum laude and chose to spend her career with special needs, special education, special education. Nice. Um, uh, my grandmother uh, did the same thing. Um, so, and I've had several teachers that I've so appreciate, but I, I had a, a college professor, uh, uh, an English uh, professor who um, asked us to do uh, a paper, a project on uh, something that had impacted us in our life. And, and 
it doesn't really matter what the topic was. It wasn't World War II. But she took an interest in me and um, helped me in, in how to research and how to write and try and express my feelings. Um, and I don't think I had written anything other than uh, maybe some uh, talks that were given at uh, youth or civic groups. Um, and I hadn't written anything outside. I'm a retired CPA, and so I'd, I'd written things that have to do with the IRS and, <laughs> and other mundane things, but had never really written anything. But I actually found that paper that I had written and her comments and remembered her encouragement. Um, and I was going to find, I, I had a couple of uh, world famous authors as clients. And I was initially thinking, I'm going to do all this research, put everything together, and then I'm just going to hire a ghostwriter, some, one of them or somebody that they recommended to do this. And as I got into it, um, and with some of the experiences I had, I decided, I can do this. This is something that I should do and that I want to do. I didn't think it was going to take me 10 years, but uh, nevertheless, uh, I uh, stuck with it. Uh, many times, uh, almost gave up, um, but it seemed like every time I ran into an obstacle, uh, something happened where uh, I was able to work through it, and I had some great people that, that helped me along the way. Um, it's not easy to self-publish, uh, especially as a first-time author, and then to have uh, have have a book, have some success, which uh, my, mine has, and I'm very appreciative of that. I I didn't write it to make money. I didn't write it for recognition. Uh, I wrote it because it's a story that I I wanted to make sure was shared and not lost, like so many of them uh, from men and women like my father, uh, their stories are died with them and they'll never be told. I appreciate you sharing this. It, uh, and it is as, as a side note, it's sad that, uh, um, having lots of stories never be told, but, uh, uh Ken, thanks so much for talking with me today. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, it's so cool getting a chance to, to, to feel like you get to know your mother and father, uh, you put their stories into words, um, their experiences uh, um, during World War II. Um, your book, Missing, A World War II Story of Love, Friendships, Courage, and Survival, is an amazing book that everyone should read. I'm wishing you the very best. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.